Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, writer and former laser physicist Kate Green sat down for a chat with our public programme producer, Lisa Derry. They talk about Kate's experience living as second in command on NASA's first simulated Mars mission, High Seas. Living in an isolated geodesic dome for four months with her crewmates, Kate gained incredible insight into human behaviour in tight waters. Lisa and Kate cover food taste experiments, how human bodies cope in space, how NASA and SpaceX work together, and how the isolation that astronauts experience relates to the isolation we've all felt during COVID lockdowns. This conversation was recorded over Zoom as part of our programme of live streams. If you want to hear more like this, head over to rigb.org to check out our upcoming talks. And now we'll jump right into Kate Green reading an extract from her book, Once Upon a Time, I Lived on Mars. So what I thought I would do to start off uh, was just to read from the book a little bit. And I'm going to just read from the introduction um, to kind of give folks the idea of, of what this project was. I mean, High Seas was a project uh, that ran from uh, 2015 to 2018, uh, NASA funded to look at um, the, the way that crews of astronaut-like people behave um, in long duration missions. So our mission was a four month mission, but there were others of eight months and a full year. And so um, what I'll be talking about, I guess, is, is um, how it came to be and, um, and, and my involvement in it. So there were clouds in the Hawaiian sky on the morning of June 3rd, 1965, and beyond them, 200 miles up, astronaut Ed White floated through the hatch of his Gemini 4 capsule and became the first American spacewalker. His main task was to test a handheld propulsion gun which would blast him to the end of his tether and back three times before it would run out of fuel. 23 minutes later, over the Gulf of Mexico, White tugged on his umbilical and floated back inside the craft. Basewalk is cakewalk, mission accomplished. A year later, the second American spacewalk nearly ended in disaster. NASA wanted Gene Cernan to try out a full-fledged jet pack built by the Air Force and stowed outside and at the back of his Gemini 9 spacecraft. Cernan, unlike White, had no propulsion gun. To reach the pack, he needed to use the hand and foot holds bolted to the exterior. Bad news was that these holds were too few. Worse news was that Cernan's suit was unexpectedly stiff once pressurized due to extra fabric to protect him from the heat of the jetpack's thrusters. And so Cernan clumsily pawed at the exterior of the capsule, spun himself around and tried to grab at anything while barely able to move his arms and legs. It might have been funny, if not for the mortal danger. Cernan's exertions, a heart rate maxing out at 195 beats per minute and heavy breathing overwhelmed his suit's cooling system. Sweat stung his eyes and his visor fogged. NASA eventually canceled the walk. Still, he wasn't yet out of danger. Both he and crewmate Tom Stafford knew Cernan would have to make his way back inside on his own since Stafford couldn't leave his post. If Cernan couldn't manage it, protocol required that Stafford throw him overboard, effectively cutting the tether to close the hatch to return to Earth. A highly motivated but utterly exhausted Cernan eventually did make it back, using his nose to rub a small window through the mist on his visor, two hours and eight minutes after the spacewalk began. 
Ten days after that troubled spacewalk, NASA reps attended a pre-scheduled demonstration of underwater astronaut training, a new kind of zero-G simulation put on by a small NASA contractor. The founders of the company had been trying for years to get someone at the agency to seriously consider using scuba for mission training, but hadn't gotten much traction. Now, however, NASA officials were ready to listen, and Cernan, who many suspected had his own panic to blame for the botched spacewalk, was first to sign up. At a prep school pool in Baltimore, where the company had developed their training setup, Cernan, in a pressure suit, slipped into the pool and practiced moving around, turning knobs and tightening screws outside a mock-up Gemini capsule. Impressed with the exercise, Cernan announced that compared to zero-G, it was at least 75% accurate. Certainly good enough to develop best practices and improve safety on future flights. Soon, other astronauts followed, and by the end of 1966, neutral buoyancy training had become a critical part of pre-mission operations. NASA still uses this kind of underwater training today, but recently the agency has also embraced an enhanced kind of simulation that goes far beyond practice in a pool. These simulations are called analog missions, and they are how the details of future human exploration to asteroids, the moon, and Mars come into focus. Analogs, which are managed by space agencies and independent organizations around the world in places like Antarctica, Morocco, Moscow, and an underwater facility off Key Largo, let engineers test equipment and play out scenarios that might arise on expeditions in deep space. But increasingly, these faux space missions are also used to probe astronaut psychology and sociology, the most unpredictable element in any human expedition, to study coping strategies potentially useful on a long journey far away from Earth. So this next section, I get into the specifics of our mission um, and the fact that it was in Hawaii, which is kind of uh, an uncommon place for uh, a Mars mission, a, a simulated Mars mission to take place, most people think. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it depends on where you are in Hawaii. You can, you can definitely get a Martian experience there, um, just like the deserts of Utah or, or Morocco. In 2013, NASA launched its newest Mars analog called Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas. The project emerged from the interests of Kim Binstead, Professor of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of Hawaii, and Jean Hunter, Professor of Biological and Environmental Engineering at Cornell. Both were curious about space food systems for Mars and about the food's impact on crew psychology. In 2012, they put out a call for almost astronauts to participate in a four-month Mars mission. Binstead and Hunter wanted a crew who could technically qualify for spaceflight, according to NASA, in terms of education and experience. They were also looking for astronaut-like personalities, which, according to Binstead, feature, quote, thick skin, a long fuse, and an optimistic outlook. Nearly 700 people applied worldwide. At the time, I was a science journalist and not necessarily an obvious choice for the mission. And yet I found myself on it. Between April and August, 2013, I lived with five other not really astronauts in isolation, all of us making various Martian concessions, like mostly bathing with wet wipes, foregoing real-time social media, and zero access to fresh fruits and vegetables. We lived inside a large white geodesic dome off an access road at 8,000 feet on the Hawaiian volcano of Mauna Loa. The scene was very red, very rocky, very Mars. There was limited electricity and water. We could only leave the dome wearing bulky, cumbersome, spacesuit-like outerwear. While we had an emergency cell phone, our sole regular contact with Earth 
is through email. And since Mars is extremely far away and photons can only fly so fast, our email transmissions were delayed by 20 minutes each way to mimic the actual communication lag to be experienced by Martian explorers. It wasn't your typical Hawaiian vacation. All for science though, Vincent and Hunter's main research question regarding food was this, might it make sense to allow astronauts to cook their own meals once they've landed on Mars? Data has shown that astronauts on six month missions on the International Space Station eat less over time and lose weight, making them more prone to illness and injury. One reason for this could be that they grow bored with their limited selection of just add water and heat entrees. The consequences could be dire on a two and a half year mission to Mars. But what if once on Mars, back in touch with gravity, astronauts could cook their own meals? They'd have to use shelf stable ingredients, of course, but given enough ingredients like freeze dried beef, dehydrated onions, bell peppers, tomatoes, flour, rice, freeze dried cheese, cashews, oils, spices, there could be thousands of recipes. Might these novel dishes help astronauts regain their appetite? In effect, Vincent and Hunter wanted to measure the importance of cooking and meals in isolation more generally, how food affects a crew's physical, mental, and social health. Imagine a homemade cake to commemorate a milestone, the successful landing, say, or a birthday, or a halfway point in the mission, celebratory tacos, a vegetable stir fry, fresh baked bread with butter and jam. On earth, it might be obvious that food is more than just sustenance for a body, that it plays a psychological, social, and cultural role, and that it nourishes the spirit and our relationships with others. But to ask complex questions about the role of food on a Mars mission and base a brand new Mars analog around these questions, it's pretty radical actually. And so for this food study, which was just one of many high seas experiments, we ate a combination of pre-prepared meals similar to those currently available on the ISS, as well as meals we cooked in our small yet well-equipped Martian kitchen. We logged the changes in our appetites and weights and took tests to measure our ability to breathe through our noses and to identify odors, all of which relate to hunger and food satisfaction. There were nearly a dozen other experiments too, trying out antimicrobial socks, tests of mental acuity, behavioral surveys, the list goes on. We lived and breathed survey questions for four months, four months of isolation, four months of the same people, same seats at the table, same clothes, same smell, same routine, same view outside the one and only window looking out onto the same rocks, no sunshine on our skin, no fresh air in our lungs. I truly don't want to overstate the difficulty. We were never in any mortal danger, but there were some aspects of the experience that I did find trying. I missed face-to-face -face conversations with my wife. I longed for a change of scene and better indoor lighting, a swim in the ocean or a pool, a walk in the woods, a bike ride. And our crew did have a handful of emotional trials and interpersonal dust-ups. There were frustrated and confusing communications between mission support and some crew members, especially in the beginning. And then at one point, there was a real hurricane bearing down on us, though it juked north just before landfall. Also, brief power outages, annoyance over chores, those multitude of daily research questions, personal insecurities, relationship issues back home, high-altitude living, only eight minutes of shower time per week, sleep deprivation, a strained plumbing system that put the toilets out of commission and required us to shit in trash bag lined buckets, frustrations with our simulated spacesuits, awkward social interactions, and a creeping sense of torpor as the mission wore on. But in the grand scheme of things, no, 
It was not, in fact, hard to pretend to be an astronaut on Mars. There were no life or death decisions, not even close. And besides, I had signed up for it. We all had. It's kind of amazing what, given the right context cues, can feel normal pretty fast. Though, of course, there's really nothing normal about six adults making believe they live on another planet. Thank you very much. So I read the book, as I said, I devoured it over the past week. And it's a great mixture of historical elements to space travel, uh, your personal stories and your time on the high seas mission. Uh, so I wanted to start asking you, you said that um, 700 people applied to be part of this mission. And I th wondered what the process of getting onto the program was like, uh, what the interview process was, and what you think made you stand out compared to the other like 690 odd people that didn't make it? Well, I'll respond to that last part first. I actually don't know. Uh, I, can, I can make some guesses, but I don't know what the final decision process was like. Um, and I never really asked. Uh, I think that um, the way that I heard about the mission was through an NPR article, you know, I was bored one day scrolling through Twitter and um, came across an article talking about why astronauts like Tabasco sauce. And, you know, click, right? Who I didn't even know astronauts like Tabasco sauce, let alone why they might. So um, I read the article and toward the end, there was this link that was a call for um, participants in the high seas study. And it wasn't the only way that the, um, the study was, um, advertised, but it was the way that I found it. And so I applied. Um, one thing I did, I, I, I actually like applying to things. Um, I'm one of those people I'm interested to see, you know, uh, who shows up in the application, so to speak. And, um, and I thought, they're probably going to get a lot of applications, I'll keep mine short and sweet. And so that was that was one goal. And, um, and then, you know, through the course, I, I kind of, I, I qualified because of my background in science, basically, that that put me there. And, and I think that there is something about potentially having someone who could do some science and do some writing. So like a combination of those things. Um, and then at one point there was a Skype interview that was pretty fun. Um, and so that was, that was a, a component. And I think after that, they selected the final people um, to go to Ithaca where Cornell University is. And, um, and we did a sort of cooking class uh, with each other, learning how to cook with these foods that we would use on the experiment. And so, and I think that that was a way for the, uh, for Kim Vincent and Jean Hunter and the other people involved with the project to see how we worked uh, together, you know, uh, what our personalities were in a team setting. So after that, uh, the six were selected. There were nine of us um, in Ithaca, and then there were six of us selected. And the three who were not were um, backups and operated as mission support in, in some ways too. So uh, we were all kind of part of a team there. And um, when you were doing this cooking class together, you mentioned that you're using the ingredients that you would be using um, on the mission. Did anything like surprise you or was anything a lot tastier than you thought it would be or was it a lot harder to use those ingredients yeah that's a great question well i was coming to that cooking class with not a ton of um good culinary like insights and confidence on my own so there was a lot that was new for me um 
but the things that surprised me were um, actually how easy it was to make pizza dough and to like make homemade pizza. So that's, that's a thing that has happened since that it's just like kind of a pleasure actually. Um, the other thing was to appreciate um, how you can make not exactly sushi rolls, but like vegetable rolls. So you rehydrate oh, yeah. um, like vegetables kind of, you know, you, you cut it up nicely and then, you know, you make your rice and seaweed wrap. And so um, having some sort of like sushi and, and also um, just, there are a lot of foods that lend themselves to um, being shelf stable over time. So like kimchi this was one of my first experiences eating kimchi and I really appreciated that and just like a lot of dried seafood a lot of dried um like Japanese snacks were really delicious so um yeah it was it was fun the other thing that really stood out and I didn't realize um how great it would be until the actual mission itself was the egg powder that we used. Um, I guess back in the day, there was some egg powder, dehydrated egg powder that reconstituted in a kind of sad way. And uh, so those eggs, those omelets were not very palatable to many people. They would get crumbly and just like the, the flavor wasn't great, but there's a, a company called uh, the mix product called a company called over easy that makes a pro product um, like an, egg crystals they're called. And I was able to actually talk to them about their process um, after the mission because I was so impressed by um, how delicious these egg crystals were when they were, you know, when you added water and then made an omelet or scrambled eggs. So that was something that I became obsessed with. Those eggs were delicious. I guess that's a really good, well, first of all, excellent name over easy, but also a really good endorsement for them that someone that was in isolation for four months came out still liking it oh, <laughs> turned into like the, the meal, the sort of like um, um, the anchor meal for me of, of the mission is that like delightful omelet that I could make with those eggs. Nice. So your team on the mission seemed like quite a diverse one. You mentioned the book that you had people from a wide range of backgrounds. Uh, but if we look at astronauts that actually go into space, it, it doesn't seem necessarily the case. And interestingly enough, when I was writing this, ESA have just announced that they're bidding to recruit a more diverse crew uh, with one parastronaut that they've called uh, someone who meets the usual criteria but has a physical disability. And I know that's something you suggested in the book because obviously gravity, people can move around, you can engineer things that people can use to help them. So that's great. Um, they also said in the same statement, we would in particular encourage women to apply because it's really interesting and supportive if we have mixed teams. Now, it seems odd that I have to say that in 2021 and that they have to say that too. Um, mm -hmm. But for some, that statement isn't enough. Uh, so I'd like you to talk about the data because I know you downloaded and collected data um, whilst you were there for the four months, I think, on the team's sleep and their calorific intake. So could you tell us what that entailed and what they involved and also how those results lead to show the potential benefits of sending maybe an all women or female crew on future missions. Yeah, wow, I didn't know about that ESA announcement. That's actually really exciting. And I, I, I want to I wanna learn more about that because I did have a, a section about um, the fact that my brother uh, was paraplegic and he, you know, on earth that is, you know, he had to be in a wheelchair, but in space, legs don't matter as much. In fact, they get in the way and they're this main source of like um, 
you have to exercise them a lot. So they, and they require like a ton of calories. So uh, to keep those large muscles healthy and, you know, um, and those bones strong. So the idea of maybe looking at um, people with amputated or, you know, fewer than like, or like arms and legs is actually kind of an interesting thought because, um, and, and you think about engineering systems anyway, and how beneficial it might be to have something that you could swap out. So not just like legs that you could put on when you're on Mars, but like some sort of like, um, some different kinds of um, uh, limbs that you could use. So yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I think that, it, I mean, it's so weird to be in space anyway, for a human body to be in space anyway. And so the idea that this sort of like physical ideal, historically, it's been a strong white man, you know, looking back at the origins of space flight, the idea that that is the ideal physical body or just like the thing that should be in space is kind of absurd because you put a human body in space and like that's actually kind of absurd anyway. So why not think differently about um, who is in space, you know, why, why uh, and it's, you know, I just have to say that it's, it's because of legacy and history that um, it's taking a long time and ingrained um, cultures in these space agencies that, that believe that because it happened that way in the past, that's the way that it should continue to happen. So what you said about, you know, it's crazy that in 2021, we're still thinking about like, um, asking more women, you know, to apply is, is actually, I mean, it is, it is absurd. Um, and, and it, it points to the fact that of how, how slow moving the cultures are in so many organizations that are geared toward um, space exploration. Although there's a lot of people who are, there are a lot of people who are working to, to change that. But um, in reference to the, the question about um, the caloric intake uh, of astronauts, I was, I was doing a sleep study and um, collecting data for sleep and also um, caloric expenditure. Um, and uh, I noticed that, you know, week in and week out, the women on the crew, I didn't know whose data was whose because it was anonymous, um, but the women on the crew uh, expended less than half the calories of the guys. And this was substantiated when you looked at um, the table at our meals because um, the guy's plates of food would be like heaping and then they would often go back for a second. So they were requiring a lot of food. And it got me thinking about um, the fact that two and a, like a, a Mars mission would be roughly two and a half years, two and a half years of food is a huge payload weight and it takes up a lot of space. Um, but wow, what if you had a crew that required half of that? So that's, that's an immediate savings in space and essentially cost if you, you know, factor into the rocket equation, depending on how you want to like um, write your equations around for, uh, you know, if you want to load up more on um, scientific uh, equipment, what have you. It depends on how, like the, the give and take. You'd have to talk to the engineers about the specifics of that. But if you had half of like a crew of all men um, versus a crew of all women would require twice the calories. And so that's twice the weight in food payload. <clears throat> so economically speaking, um, it occurred to me, maybe it just makes sense to send only women to Mars. Of course, it's kind of a tongue in cheek argument uh, because only men went to the moon, you know, and, um, and uh, I, I wrote a piece about it for Slate um, a few years back. And it turns out that I wasn't the first person to think of this. Uh, there have been people at NASA uh, over the years. And in fact, there, um, 
before the um, original Mercury astronauts were chosen, there was some thought that maybe uh, female astronauts should go as well because um, in, in medical studies, turns out that um, they dealt better with some of the conditions of spaceflight. Their hearts dealt better, and, and in isolation, they performed better than than some of the guys. So, um, but of course, you know, um, optics really matter, uh, especially when you're trying out these uh, new untested technologies, and uh, there could be some lives on the line, and and there were. So the decision was made that um, we would go with these uh, guys who are used to sort of risking their lives in a test pilot function, you know, even though the women who um, underwent the, um, the, the early research were also pilots, they just weren't test pilots. And so, um, you know, it's interesting how um, the decision to have only male astronauts was made. It was based on the fact that well, we're only going with test pilots. And since someone else made the decision that test pilots can only be men, then I guess these astronauts will only be men. So it's, I mean, if you just look at the logic of these decisions and like, and that's a legacy decision to the point where um, if you look at the numbers and I don't know what they are now at the time of the book, something like um, almost 600, more than 600 people have gone to gone into space and only like a little over a hundred of them have been women. It's really a small number. It's an incredibly small number. And if you look at the makeup of um, astronaut corps now, you see that it, it looks a little different, but I mean, just historically speaking, there's no getting around the fact that um, space has almost exclusively been for men and white men at that. Mm. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this new um, drive by Ether and I think it sounds like they're recruiting and then they'll be deciding I think 2022 October 2022 so it's a long process but we'll see what happens yeah that's and really exciting yeah I'm, I'm excited too <laughs> should I apply I don't know might as well I'll, I'll take a leaf out of your book might as well try absolutely <laughs> um and I felt thought what was interesting um you you referred to uh, Scott Kelly's mission uh, quite a few times in the book and one thing about uh, the eyeballs where there was this weird syndrome. I mean, you probably should explain it because I just remember something that he said only affects male astronauts' eyeballs. And it was a weird side effect of space. Like, could you <laughs> elaborate on that? Yeah, please? I can talk a little bit about that. You know, reading his book and, and learning that it was only something that affected uh the eyeballs of men was a surprise to me. I hadn't heard that, but um, the, it's one of the big issues. Um, I guess uh, zero G has this weird pressurizing effect on, on the shape of the eye. And so it changes the, the lens. So um, if you were nearsighted, you're, you become farsighted and farsighted, you become nearsighted. I'm not quite sure on the details, but I know that it was one of the research questions that he was investigating on his year long mission. You know, what is this? Um, what's the, what's the physical mechanism behind this? So yeah, that's, that's another example of just a sort of like uh, physical difference. And it's kind of unclear why that would be the case, um, that it would, it would break down by sex. But um, again, it's, it's one of those weird space mysteries, um, how uh, the body becomes strange when taken outside of its uh, natural habitat of Earth. For me, it just reminds me that everyone that goes up there, like we, we don't know everything that happens when we send people to space. And everyone is kind of in their own little experiment each time and we learn more and more. And it's like, you're already in a very dangerous environment and you, you don't know all the answers. And 
oh, it's just incredible. Absolutely. So my hat goes off to everyone that goes up there. Right. Bringing it back down to Earth again, or Mars, sorry. Um, so the main mission, I know you had lots of different experiments going on and lots of like, um, everyone had their own project that they were focusing on. Um, and I know the main mission was uh, this menu fatigue, which is important to figure out. Um, and it sounded like there were several weird and wonderful ways and tests that you had to do over the four months that linked to smelling of food and scratch and sniff booklets and a nose flute. Um, <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit more about those and um, the data that they collected on this? Sure. Well, I have to say, I don't, I don't know exactly what the results are from those tests, just to start off, but I can speak to the experience of being the guinea pig that underwent uh, some of those experience, experiential experiments, um, where, yeah, so we had to, it's important to know how well you can breathe through your nose. So um, there was one of uh, a test of nasal patency where one side of your nose was blocked and you breathed out of uh, the other side exclusively. And there was a, um, an instrument that like saw the volume of air, you know? And so seeing how this changes over time. Um, also the, the nose flute, a rhinometer that you stuck up your nose ever so slightly and that uh, measured the shape of your nasal cavity. Uh, and so that was interesting to see a sort of mathematical representation of what the holes in my head um, look like. That was pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, uh, the ones that were uh, smell based, we had a couple. Um, so even though we were isolated, we would get supply drops for the sake of the experiment. And we would get um, these cups, these plastic cups with the lids on them with holes punched in them that we would squeeze and a smell would puff up and we had to sort of uh, rate the smell on like what we thought it was, uh, uh, if it smelled good, if we wanted to eat it. And it's so strange how taken out of context, things don't smell like they should. I think I remember something like spaghetti sauce smelled very strange to me and I, I didn't know if it was spaghetti sauce ever and it, just because it wasn't like on spaghetti I couldn't tell what this what this actually was I couldn't see it um and so we had we did that two different ways the first was just like um breathing in the uh, volatiles through our noses and then the other was um inhaling through a straw while our noses were plugged and then releasing our noses and breathing out through our um, through our nose. So that way it's called retronasal olfaction and the volatiles go through your mouth and up through a different pathway. And some things can smell completely different that way. Uh, so soy sauce, for instance, I would smell soy sauce and I was like, oh yeah, I know that soy sauce. That's great. Love it. But then when I like inhaled it and I smelled it retronasally, it was very distressing to me how disgusting that smell was. So like there was such an I was always afraid, <laughs> you know, is this gonna be the, the cup with soy sauce? I didn't know. And so that was, that was something that we did throughout the mission. And then we also did four times during the mission, um, a scratch and sniff booklet that, you know, it's scientifically verified, but you'd um, scratch off this little section and you'd smell it and you would identify, you know, you had a choice of four items. So like something like rubber or rose or lemon or grass and, um, you know, when you first take the test, you're just like, this is easy. This is like kid stuff. It ac actually felt like some kids like scratch and sniff book. But what surprised me the most was how the, at the very end of the mission, the last time we took this, we all sat around. I 
I was more confused. I didn't know for sure what the smell was. You know, I, I had, it took me longer to reply or respond. And I don't know what the results were of that. Um, but it was because, I mean, I suspect, I don't, I don't know, but when you're just, you have less um, diverse smell experiences when you're in isolation. And so I think it really um, dulled something in me, like, and it, it took me longer to sort of like think about what, what was actually being uh, smelled. And, and especially like the outdoor odors, like the plant odors, because we weren't getting any of that. So like smelling grass um, was like super evocative. These smells were incredibly evocative, I have to say in isolation. Mm, Cause you, you hear of people smelling something and it like takes them back to a certain memory or time and I can imagine if you've been stuck in a in a dome for four months some smells must maybe trigger some emotional response yeah um, absolutely I mean definitely Proust Madeline effect was was in full force for me at least and did they focus on smell because I know a lot of your taste comes from your smell when you're eating um but does does smell get affected when astronauts go up into space? Like, was there a specific reason they were focusing so much on the the nose and the smell part? Yeah, of- exactly. So there, so there's some thinking around that that big question of why astronauts eat less in space, and it's related to the Tabasco sauce thing. Um, is that maybe? Um, well, it could be just generalized boredom. Um, they don't have as many things to choose from, so the, so their senses do become dull. But it could also be the fact that your fluids shift in zero G, and so maybe your nose is a little supped up. Um, and we were the control study, actually, for another study that was happening um, while we were on the mission in Texas. And this was a bed rest study where uh, participants lay in bed for many months and at a at an angle so that the fluids kind of like flood their head and you know the shape of their heart changes there are all sorts of like very strange physical effects that happen when you're um, laying in bed in this orientation and it's it's a way to mimic zero g um, so they were taking they were doing the same tests that we were uh, and so th- that is the the comparison data to see you know, we didn't have the um, zero G effects, but we had the isolation effects just like they did. You know, one of the things um, that I learned about that is that some of the participants were selected to exercise um, while they were in bed and others weren't. Of course, there's like um, a, a week or more of physical therapy they have to do after the experiment ends. But the ones who were selected to do exercise Um, you know, I was talking to someone at NASA, I said, well, what kind of exercise can you do? And of course you can do, you can use um, exercise bands. That's one way, but um, uh, I got sent this picture of a vertical treadmill. And so while a person is laying in this position, um, they're bungeed to this treadmill and their feet are running. So they're, they're running on a treadmill in bed essentially, which is just, yeah, I mean, the ingenuity to come up with these experiments to simulate zero G here on Earth is pretty, pretty miraculous. I think if I was one of the participants that weren't chosen to do the exercise, I'd be very, very jealous of the ones that got to use like a 90 degree angle of treadmill. That yeah, sounds I would quite too. Fun. <laughs> um, now, I mentioned before that everyone on the team had their own projects. Um, you studied sleep patterns and like circadian rhythm. I believe. Um, And then one of your teammates had a project about robotic pets, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) which you mentioned that you didn't seem keen on them. 
and then you kind of leave it at that so I thought I wondered yeah if, because because we always see articles of um like a robotic seal getting taken to a care home and everyone really loves them and like it's a way of like getting people to like care for things and stuff so how come you weren't so keen on the robot the robotic pets idea well I just think it's such a great idea to think about um other ways like non-human companionship in isolation and especially in space um because you can't actually have um like pet animals and all the plants are for the experiments you know although I think when you do 10 plants in space you do tend to get attached to them as well um it seems like that's a possibility so I think it's just a fantastic question to think about um and I think so many of us during this time of isolation too are experiencing how important it is to have something other than like uh, just human communication you know so many people are are adopting pets and um getting into plants and all sorts of like different um, ways of being with living creatures uh, that this, the, the pandemic and the isolation is kind of forced on us um, if you weren't doing it already, you know? So um, yeah, I think that the reason why I wasn't so keen on these pets were because I think they were like early models. Um, and one was a Romibo and another was um, the Pleo, that dinosaur. And so this was in 2000. 13 and those systems were I think that we're dealing with like older versions of the systems anyway so like like not very advanced um plus um for me I didn't I didn't need to have something else at that point I think um those those robots came into my life on Mars in like maybe a couple months in and had I been there maybe six months or seven months, it would have been nice to have a change of pace, but because it was um, not that long, you know, one person described four months as, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel as soon as you enter the tunnel. And um, so I think it was just a combination of those things, but I do think it's a fantastic idea. And I know that um, NASA and JAXA have worked on um, robotic systems, AI systems that um, are, provide companionship, but are also sort of like uh, monitoring facial expressions to maybe help the sad astronaut or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. if you're not responding to, um, if you're not saying that something's bothering you, but there, it might be obvious, then potentially they could just get more support um, that they need. Although I have to say, um, mental health and astronauts is a very tricky thing to study because um, astronauts are loath to admit any sort of like uh, mental health issues because that would be a perceived weakness and then um, likely they would not be able to fly again. So, um, and you're in space, you should be glad you're there. So, I mean, this is one of the things that makes astronaut boredom very difficult to track and study because um, the definition of boredom simply doesn't apply to astronauts, you know, but I, um, I suspect based on my experience and conversations with folks that maybe it's a, it's a question of definitions, you know, um, and if, if, if there were a different way to think of those questions uh, to get at the heart of the matter, uh, what, what happens when a person is bored over time or in an isolated environment where things aren't changing very much, then um, you could get some pretty interesting, good answers that could, that could do very well to support um, astronauts on these long duration missions. Because mm, even on the most exciting adventure, there's going to be downtime or repetitive tasks and 
Boredom has become a, not a, not an ugly word, but people seem to be scared to admit that they're bored or it's not accepted. I feel maybe over isolation and COVID people have become more accepting and realize that you are allowed to be bored and it's fine to um, use that time. And it's interesting about that you mentioned mental health as well, because obviously we mentioned earlier that um, an astronaut with a physical disability could be picked if they meet the requirements stated for astronauts, but mental health just seems to be an instantaneous you can't join the program and I know Mm -hmm. it's a very tricky thing to measure but um where do you draw the line like it affects people in different ways and and you might see something um you might see that becoming less important as um there are more commercial flights and um individuals or groups who are deciding that people can go into space who aren't um space agencies I think and, and that's just going to be a different um, situation altogether. So you, you don't have to necessarily prove that you have the right stuff. You um, might just have to like, be able to apply and, and catch the eye of whoever um, is deciding um, what those crews will look like. And it seems like at this point, they are very wealthy people who can afford to buy seats on not yet built rockets made by SpaceX. So those are the like that's the way that's that's going to be the like a next phase of you know astronaut selection Mm. um when I was reading your book I was getting not a little bit worried but every time SpaceX was mentioned or private companies it seemed that I didn't know whether I trusted private companies to take us to Mars before like a government funded um company um not company organization sorry and then you mentioned the old uh, polar expeditions mm-hmm. where the private companies or the private privately funded expeditions were actually more successful than the public ones. And you, you kind of changed my mind. And I don't know if you wanted to delve into that a little bit because oh, sure. I found it yeah. really interesting. Yeah, that was a, um, a great study that uh, I was turned on to by Tom Standage, um, an editor at The Economist who I've worked with and we've talked a lot about these issues. And um, I really appreciated that study because it did um, show how in polar expeditions, um, the incentives were just such that uh, private expeditions um, were made up of people who were uh, more skilled, uh, more open to innovation and and more motivated for success in in various ways. Whereas the public, uh, expeditions tended to have the leadership be chosen through like nepotism. And um, there was, there was a lot more careerism that like was uh, driving the, the makeup of those crews and a little bit like what we talk about um, culture, how slow cultures are to change around space exploration. Um, that was at play in these polar expeditions too, because you saw that the crews on the publicly funded mission saw how um, the Inuit used clothing, used fur, seals fur, and um, and then like laughed and said, that's not us. So they were wearing wool clothing that was just getting wet and bogged down and their sleeping bags were terrible and heavy. And they were, they were just, they, they were very close to the idea that um, the, these people who were living in this environment had anything to offer them. <laughs> and so that, so those were the actual factors at play. You have like open to innovation, you have, um, 
uh, like more diverse crews in some ways um, and leaders who were chosen not through nepotistic routes, you know, as opposed to this public, um, like the public expedition. So when you, when you look at those reasons, yeah, of course, these are all the things that we know make up um, like success, uh, successful teams um, and like uh, innovative um, organizations today. So that's absolutely relevant. Yeah. But at the same time, it's interesting to see the, sp the SpaceX NASA relationship because it's not a straightforward private company versus public company at all. There's, there's a lot of give and take, push and pull. And um, something that NASA and other, you know, publicly funded space agencies do really well, I think, is inspire a, a broader swath of people to um, get excited about space and make them believe that it is for them too. And that's part of like the public mandate because you know your tax money is going toward this, it does belong to you. Whereas in private companies, there's an attitude of, if you don't like the message I'm putting out, then you don't have to be part of this program. And when you're doing that and you, and your message is space, it, it's a little, like, it seems a little grabby and exclusionary. So there's, there's actually a, a really interesting sort of like mm, complicated tension, I think, that's going on in both, both cases. I do think that, and, and in the way that they work together too, the way that NASA um, has safety protocols and oversights over SpaceX and the way that SpaceX is you know, driving NASA to make certain decisions based on, I mean, for instance, um, the Dragon capsule, uh, they wanted it to be smaller. Uh, and so or they needed it to be, engineers needed it to be smaller. And so they asked the food um, scientists at NASA if they could design a, um, a meal replacement bar that could be used to replace at least one meal a day for astronauts in, for this very purpose of saving space, um, saving weight. And that was, that was something that was like driven by that entire research program, which um, by the way, um, turns out these meal replacement bars weren't a huge success in the research studies, but that mm -hmm. entire program was um, driven by uh, SpaceX engineering um, uh, designs. So that was, um, so it's just, it's interesting to think of the interplay and how it's contributing to the like public attitudes towards space, but also toward innovation in space exploration in general. I think there are like many different facets of it. Mm. I guess like with most situations, it's not a clear cut one side versus the other, which right. sometimes I forget and other people forget, but it is interesting to see how they work together. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see. Now, one thing that keeps popping up on the questions as well, and I was going to ask you about, which I think unfortunately resonates with a lot of people at the moment, is the isolation aspect of um, you being on the base for four months. In my mind, the project leaders must have had a good idea of what isolation does to people, and they've seen uh, the kind of mannerisms and behaviours that come out from astronauts that have been uh, in space and also other programmes um, that might have been like this. So... Was there anything that they tried to prepare or train you for or like warn you about or to look out for? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the thing about isolation is it shuts off this very important part of being human, which is to adapt to changing environments. Like this is all organisms, you know, and this is humans in particular, and especially because humans are so social, um, that can create some big challenges. Um, 
the when you don't have when you're isolated and you don't have the ability to adapt because there's nothing changing right so um some of the things that are known about this and that have been studied uh are the fact that um micro stimuli get larger over time so the sound of your crewmate eating their cornflakes at breakfast can at first the first few weeks you might notice it and it's that's just something you wouldn't eat your cornflakes like that. That's what you think. But then um, after three months of that, you're ready to throttle them. You wonder like, how can anyone eat cornflakes like that? So um, those sort of situations uh, we were uh, told to look out for. Um, the fact that there's something called the third quarter syndrome and it's, it's been observed in journals and, and um, other like of Arctic explore and Antarctic um, people on Antarctic expeditions that when you know that the um, mission is almost over, but it's still not quite over, but you've, you know, the, everything has gotten a little too boring, you know, it's the same thing, you're used to it, um, and you still have a ways to go, that usually happens at the third quarter, and it was remarkable, we knew about that, and still, there were some very tense moments that happened around that time for us, um, just people got annoyed easier. Um, it was, we were more frustrated with ourselves and others. Um, that and communication just in general breaks down. This is a really interesting um, sort of side effect that happens in isolation. Uh, and I think that it was, it's something that is relevant to a lot of people now is this us versus them phenomenon. So when you are isolated with people, the people that you're with, you tend to think that no one outside can possibly understand what you're going through. And the fact is they don't, but it like, it leads to this lack of trust and a sort of paranoia that builds. And like, there were, there were just like little sparks of that here and there for our project um, during the project, but you can see that happening and it's almost being um, exploited in a way um, in, in our current times, you know, the, when you don't know who to trust and when you don't know what information is coming in is valuable and good, you think that only the people who are the same as you in the same situation as you um, have the right answer. And um, it's, it's really interesting how that is, that's a known phenomenon. And we're right now experiencing what that's like at scale and the political ramifications of that. And I mean, that's, that's something that um, when all of this started back last March, I had a sense would be one of the things uh, that would be the biggest challenge, especially the way that American media and the um, and, and the public had been building up to 2020. Uh, but it turns out that that's that's one of the most um, so like it's it's one of the most salient aspects of isolation that's relevant. Mm. I know that you mentioned that they encourage like journaling, but you also had to fill out quite a few surveys as well, which. I guess linked more to the experiments, but did you did the journaling help? And also, I guess with all the the constant questioning of like what you're eating and how you're feeling, do you think that helped? And if so, did you did it spill over into your life after the Mars mission, as it were? Like, do you think it yeah. helps to constantly check in and question yourself? Yeah, yeah. So right, there's a lot of um, self awareness uh, that came from the journaling and from the um, uh, survey taking, you know, 
I, when the mission was over, I didn't want to do that much looking, uh, you know, it was, it was just a little too much. Um, but I did, um, journaling did persist after that. And, um, and I was aware of certain things like, uh, some of the surveys asked about social interactions with each other and like how much time you spend. And, and so what that meant for me was I was looking at, um, how much time I was spending with certain members of the crew, if I was avoiding other members of the crew, you know, like what that can create a, like an imbalanced dynamic. And so just being aware of how much time you're, you're spending with each other. Yeah. There's a lot of nasal gazing, navel gazing built into the, the entire experiment. Um, and we're coming to the end of like my time, ask you questions. So I'm going to ask you basically the question that everyone asks about space and like space exploration because you mentioned that um, Mars is like a potential planet B to some people um, you were situated near a monitoring station that looked to carbon dioxide levels and obviously our climate is changing and some people might think that Mars is like the next step to help save us um, if we just destroy the earth but do you think the money used in space exploration should be used or save to be used for projects that are like closer to home and to fix the situations that we find ourselves in now? Or do you think uh, using it for space exploration is the way forward and that's what's gonna get out of this mess? Well, I'm not um, a person who's, I'm not the biggest booster for going to Mars, like kind of surprisingly after having had this experience and, um, and writing this book, I think it's a complicated question and um, uh, I don't necessarily think that it has to be like, <laughs> I don't think that by defunding space exploration, that money will actually go into changing the way that um, the world works and lead to a decrease in global warming. Um, so like that's, I, I think that it's mostly a matter of messaging and leadership and efforts that are put toward both. And so, and how those are framed. So. Uh, it is a little bit troubling to me to see the framing of um, Mars as a plan B planet, because that is, um, that is very much an elitist attitude. And it, you know, it tracks with what you see um, people in Texas who can afford to go to Cancun, uh, for instance, uh, when the power is out and um, everyone else is stuck uh, in freezing conditions without heat. You see celebrities in Southern California hiring their own version of firefighters to protect their homes when these, these are resources that should be public goods. And so when you frame space exploration around um, kind of this attitude of like, well, if you can afford to do it, then you should, but the rest of you, sorry, suckers, like that's, I think, super problematic. And I think that that doesn't engender um, uh, like good spirits and hope for the future of humanity just in general, even if you are going to go to Mars. So if, if, if you bring that attitude to Mars, I mean, what kind of planet are you, what kind of like civilization would you build there? Um, that seems, uh, it kind of like, it doesn't seem to have a lot of for thought put into it. Um, when you think about the, the, the kind of people you want, I think you'd actually want to have, um, workers, people who um, probably couldn't afford your ticket um, on those early colonization missions. You would want a diversity of, of people uh, to, to, to participate. So um, that said, I think that when the framing is done correctly and, and thoughtfully, I think that 
I think that space exploration can give anyone or everyone a feeling of like, um, like hope and potential and inspiration and awe. And when you do that, when you, when you sort of like come from a, a, a place of awe and inspiration and hope, I think that it makes people want to do something better for, you know, most people know they're not going to go to space. That's fine. But, and most people know that they're going to spend the rest of their lives on earth. And so if you, but if you have these people feeling hopeful, because like, this is something that humanity can do is to, to get people to Mars, then maybe that is actually something that can spur a a sort of care for uh, what we have here on earth. I mean, you think of the Earthrise photo and how that, um, was part of the environmental movement back in the 60s and 70s. Like that was something that was um, to see Earth from that perspective was, it, I mean, it rocked the psyche of an entire planet, essentially. And if you can do that, and that picture was an accident, by the way. There was no one at NASA who said we should take a picture of the Earth from the moon. The, on the, um, the, the protocol for that mission, it was to only photograph the moon. So like that picture was just, it happened um, spontaneously and it became one of the most important pictures of the last century. So if you think about um, what it is to be in space and how it, it can provide a different perspective. And I think that it has the potential to um, get people to think differently and better about what can be done to, um, to make this planet more livable for more people. I think that was an excellent response to quite a complicated question. So thank you. Um, we've had quite a few questions come in from the stream. One from Mark says, would you do it again? No, it's fine to have done it one time. You know, I do have crewmates who are on that mission who have signed up for more and who just actually can't get enough of it. And I don't have that in me. I mean, I don't blame you. <laughs> I think I would do something different, enough. but I've done it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to do that one again. Um, Tom asked, what was the biggest surprise for you during your time of isolation? During the time of isolation, biggest surprise. Um, there are so many, there are so many surprises, and I can't tell like what was big or what was small. Just the, um, I was very surprised that I could feel clean after a wet wipe bath using three wet wipes. So we only had eight minutes of shower time a week, and we actually all decided we didn't even need that much. We just chose four, and so that was. Um, I think there was like one, uh, each person had like a day that they showered during the week to, you know, save water, distribute it. So I had this four minute shower every Sunday. Um, but the other days I just had wet wipes and, um, amazingly three was perfect. Uh, like, and so that was something that surprised me. Uh, I also was surprised at how, um, how in shape I got because it was, uh, we had to work out every day or five days a week, essentially. And so I did P90X and a four week uh, video program. And that was, it really produced results. Um, I was surprised at where my breaking points were uh, with other people. I was surprised by the fact that I didn't mind hugely not having real-time communication 
um, cause it was only for four months. Um, I was surprised. Mm, this is, this is one. And then I'll leave it at this. I was surprised by the, um, the relief I felt in not having to tend to like the daily tasks of living on earth, which includes like going grocery shopping or, you know, yeah, going grocery shopping or managing a social calendar. Like you don't have to manage a social calendar. And like, I, I felt a relief from like all of those like little daily tasks. So I could just like focus on the thing, you know, I brought a bunch of books to read, which I couldn't read. Well, in the beginning, I had to like relax. And then, um, and I was writing a lot and writing differently too than when I came in. Um, you know, my writing changed over time. But yeah, the the relief I felt when I didn't have to do the day to day, you know, the benefits of um, being on Mars. Um, mentioning the day to day, you said that you got food packages or food bought to the base because obviously you needed some. Did that break the illusion, as it were, or was it a you hid yeah. from the person bringing the food to you? Or? So when we started the mission, we actually had all four months of our food supply there. So that was, um, there's this picture in Time Magazine of like the entire inventory spread out on the floor because it was a two-story dome. You know, you look out over the mezzanine, you could see like all this food, like all the boxes of bacon, all the, you know, like pastas, everything. Um, so we had all the supplies nominally, but this was the first mission. And so we didn't quite know what we might need. And so there was uh, built into the mythology of the mission, um, the that we would get these deliveries that would be, um, we would be informed of the delivery. So that meant we couldn't go outside on an EVA or do anything else. So we had to stay inside. Um, but there were these um, like airlock door sections that were, um, were off to the side of the dome that we didn't like go to very often. And so someone would sneak in and like deliver some like supply that was needed. So like if medicine was needed or something like that. And, and like I, the food, the, um, the, the cups for smelling uh, food, those sort of experiments that, that needed to be fresh and those foods needed to be fresh. And so that was also delivered in that way. Uh, yeah, but it was like um, a suspension of disbelief. You, I mean, the whole thing really was you, uh, you had to pick and choose when you did transport yourself to Mars. I mean, the fact is you could see Maui uh, okay. from the window. It was, it was visible. And at night you could see the lights of um, the telescopes on Mauna Kea. So um, it, you were isolated to a degree, but you also had to like tell yourself you're isolated as well. Derek has asked, was it difficult to limit your horizons to the physical space, which you had and, actually how large was that space yeah the space it's like about the size of a two bedroom apartment um it one of those large domes with like this mezzanine area where our staterooms were and the rooms were about the size of a walk-in closet and not even a large walk-in closet i have to say it was pretty um it was pretty tiny but yes um I think that it really did affect me to be so confined to one environment. Um, that honestly didn't change that much. To their credit, Kim Binsett and Jean Hunter decided to include inflatable furniture. Uh, so like blow up couches, um, uh, blow up chair. And the thinking was if you could like rearrange your space more easily. We had tables, we had other chairs too. Um, and it turns out our crew was a little bit on the I wouldn't say rigid, but we just didn't think to move things around that much. We had movie nights on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and that's when we would change um, the configuration and watch a movie. 
but by and large things stayed the same and we would have parties too and like move some tables but that always felt a little you know partying like to celebrate like a milestone is is kind of how we did it but it had that office party feel where you're just like (laughs) with the same people you work with and now you're supposed to be different um so that was because there's music playing and and the lights are different now everything's it's not like that so um you know, we did that, but it made me think that I would really appreciate um, if I were on a two and a half year mission to Mars, someone who had a great sense of space and how to um, modify it and make it beautiful and um, make it interesting. And so like someone with interior design skills, I think would be a great addition to any crew. Jim has asked, did the simulation make any adjustments to account for Mars's gravity? No. So the simulation was, um, you know, you pick and choose the things that you're going to actually simulate about a a mission to Mars. And so in this case, the main thing was the isolation and how that was managed. And what that meant was we were still like, um, you know, on earth gravity, we weren't, it it was interesting. We did talk about it, like what that would be like to kind of like um, hook into harnesses on bungees and just like make it easier to walk around and like have some sort of like, it'd almost be like some sort of circus, um, like three ring uh, contraption, but we didn't do that. And also the tent itself wasn't, like it wasn't pressurized. Our suits that we wore weren't pressurized spacesuits. Um, the food that we ate was um, backpacking food. So it was a simulation of um, NASA meals, but it wasn't NASA meals because there aren't enough of those uh, to, for, for us to use. And um, and yeah, so like it, just something, you you, but we, we were limited in electricity and water use and our communications, which was a huge aspect of the simulation was, um, was really uh, kind of the thing that was important to, to, to simulate that isolation feel. Louise has asked, I think we covered a lot of this earlier, but in case you wanted to add anything more to it, um, do you think the privatization of the space industry will increase the progression of the innovation of space travel? I, I do think it will. I think that it already has the, I mean, really fantastic, the fact of um, reusable rockets uh, that has decreased the cost of um, getting things into orbit so significantly. And so that's an innovation right there. I mean, one of the things that I think about in terms of space exploration innovation is like, are we thinking too small even? Uh, So and by we, I just mean the people who are working in these industries, and that is not necessarily me at this point, but are the people who are working in these industries thinking too small? Are we simply thinking that, well, making reusable rockets is is the main thing, you know, or making these rockets that can, um, that look look different and can get us to um, the moon, get us to, to, to Mars, is like, there is a ton of innovation that's going into that, but what about other things? You know, I write a little bit in the book about um, a researcher named Phil Lubin, who's spearheaded this project Starshot that's funded by the Breakthrough Foundation. And the idea is, you know, the propulsion is the problem. And so if you leave the propulsion at home and just send the objects, you know, then send the, the, um, the capsules, then you're you can bring a lot more, you can do a lot, you can get things to Mars and the moon a lot faster. And um, I don't know, I, I recommend looking into project um, like Starshot 
and see what it's all about. Cause the idea is like you use ultra powerful lasers an array of ultra powerful lasers to focus that light onto um, light sails and the the craft itself has the light sail and and is, is pushed and you could create some sort of ferrying system that could essentially get a package to Mars in three days. I mean, that's incredible if there were also like a receiving system on Mars too. So like that's a sort of like incredible innovation that could be um, really exciting. And I mean, it, but it requires thinking beyond um, the rocket technology that's based in missile technology, you know, has that, those, um, you know, wartime roots. And uh, it's just thinking differently. I, I like, I like, the, I like that there's, there could be a potential for that. You've just reminded me of one of the historical elements that really surprised, uh, probably a lot of people know this already, but you said that we wouldn't have the space program we have now without scientists from Nazi Germany and the missiles that they produce, like... Yeah, if Hitler hadn't have wanted to bomb London, we wouldn't have the rocket technology we have. Uh, it was, that was the impetus to getting, um, uh, to, to build more powerful long-range missiles was the precursor to the rocket technology that we have. Yeah, so Werner von Braun then came to the States and got it going here. And, you know, not for missiles, but for uh, the space program. Wow. This is why they say always like look back at history and see what people have been doing and don't repeat mistakes and stuff like that because it's fascinating. Um, Steve said you talked about food as all being taken from Earth. Um, was any thought given to the food that might be grown on Mars? Because um, in a really long mission, you'd have to grow your own. Yes. So that is an excellent question. And on our mission in particular, we didn't have a food uh, like a like a. Um, an agricultural element inside the dome, it would have confounded the food study. There were some sprouts that were grown at one point, but like special permission was given to those. Um, and yeah, it's likely that um, there would be some sort of um, farming, uh, plant growing systems that would travel on the Mars mission. The thing about that is it's actually really hard to grow to high yield crops in space on the way there. And then once on Mars, that's also a, a challenge. I mean, um, it, it can be done, but even in the best conditions on earth, like that doesn't guarantee food. Um, and it's, it's a com complicated system. So it's likely that there would be some combination of uh, food that's brought from earth and like plant-based food, but there's, um, it's highly unlikely that um, the anything grown on Mars would be substantial enough to make up the bulk uh, in the beginning. I mean, of uh, the bulk of um, any sort of food system, it would mostly just complement um, and probably be pretty experimental in the beginning as well. Uh, but it would be really nice if that's something that could could be possible. And ISS, there are ISS experiments happening all the time on, you know, uh, how to grow plants better in space. Um, one person, sorry, I cropped out the name, so I'll, I'll try and come back to it later if um, I can find it. But they said, as a converse to an early question, is there anything that NASA has learned from the lockdown experiences which followed from COVID-19? Has NASA learned from... The COVID nineteen experiences, or from, mm. the... I guess we can we can ask the question both ways. I guess has NASA yeah. learned anything from this mass lockdown that everyone's had to do, and yeah. also someone else has asked, did you carry anything that you learned to then help yourself for lockdowns in the future? Or well, yeah, I can answer that first or that last question first. It was 
I think, I think recognizing the importance of food in the beginning. So, you know, I was getting supplies last March. Um, I, I'm, I usually live in New York and I was, oh, that was a strange time to, to be living in New York in March and April. But like, I, I purposely got food that I knew could last a long time and I knew how to cook with, so like a spam masubi was something that I learned how to make. Um, so I got the supplies for that. And just, uh, there are a few other things that um, actually I have very fond memories of the high seas experience. And so like the food, I got the over easy eggs just in case, but I was making a lot of omelets, which was like a comfort meal for me. And so, um, yeah, I think that um, I recognize the importance of food and what I didn't have on the Mars mission that I wished I had was a diversity of other sensory inputs. So I got, I, I got a lot of houseplants. I got um, new sheets uh, that were soft, <laughs> softer than I had before and like with different colors, like floral prints. So like I was, I was, so I would have, I would be able to mix it up. Um, and yeah, I think that, I just, I knew that I was going to be in a spot for a while and I needed to make sure my sensory experience was, um, had the potential to be as rich as possible. You know, the music that I was listening to, I was, I had like all the art supplies that I needed and um, the books that I wanted. Um, the libraries had shut down, so I had a lot of books that weren't even being accepted back. So that was pretty nice too. Um, I don't know what NASA's learning or if they're asking questions about the um, isolation during COVID times, but that related to that question is what did, what has NASA learned from the high seas experiment in general about isolation? And, you know, some of the specifics from our study haven't been published yet because it was like a long, um, long longitudinal thing. But one of the, um, one of the results is looking at the personalities of individual crew members for mission selection. And I think that, um, I don't know the specifics of how NASA did that, but I know that they were working with, not on our mission, but in subsequent missions, they were working with um, Kim Binstead and other researchers to really understand, like to make sure you are excluding people who have personality disorders. So um, narcissistic personality or just something else that might actually um, be to the detriment of uh, a crew as a whole. and. Um, previously, uh, the way that they had tested for those um, or screened for those personalities was pretty easy for that person, that person to like, if, if they did have a personality that might not be great on a team under like stressful conditions, they could, they could override that. But they found that in asking those sort of like personality test questions of like um, the recommenders of those people, you know, to, um, then removing that person from the equation means that you start to see a signal um, in the noise of that data that maybe this is a person who um, has these tendencies and might not be the best fit for uh, a long duration mission. Somebody has asked, how did you adjust back to normal life after the four months? Oh, that's a sweet question. And I, that, that feels like a very thoughtful, sweet question. <laughs> but like a lot of people are thinking about that um, now too. Like, when it returns to normal-ish, what's it going to be like? Um, uh, I have to say that it was um, it it happened gradually and then like in in like spurts. So like for instance, I made like a an instant of, of like kind of like a spike uh, it would be 
I was very careful to wear sunscreen um, because I knew that my very pale skin would be so sensitive to light when I came out and this was Hawaii after all. So I wore sunscreen for like a couple of days and seeing my crew members like beautifully like glow and tan. And I thought, well, okay, I guess I just have to bite the bullet because I don't tan very easily. So I just like stood outside for 15 minutes without sunscreen and burned. And so like that was that was an adjustment that was like pretty extreme. But in terms of um it, it took a while to get back into the rhythm of of um domestic life with a partner, you know, that was um, you know, <laughs> just kind of sharing space again with another person in that way. Um that that took some time. Um loud noises startled me for a long time too. Um and sudden movements. I was surprised that those were things that that startled me, but but I also was surprised at how much I appreciated um, feeling the breeze on my skin and being in the sun and being in water, just submerging myself in water. Um, you know, a pool, the ocean, a bath, anything. That's something that, um, I don't know, if you can't live without a bath for two and a half years, Mars is gonna be pretty hard for you. This is true. I love a relaxing bath. It, it does wonders. Mm -hmm. um, and the last question um, from the stream, if you were given the chance to go into space, would you take it? Yes, with caveats. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, of course, I would love to go to space. I feel like maybe don't put me on the first mission to Mars. Um, that's not something I would do. I, I have to say, no one's asking me to go into space these days. Um, but what I would love would be like a, a two week mission to the moon. I mean, can you imagine that, you know, and that's gonna that's gonna happen again pretty soon. So that's um, really exciting. The first woman um, will be on the moon. And that's, that's so incredibly exciting. That seems like, um, that's a duration of a mission and a distance that is exhilarating. And also it feels manageable. And um, it's a little like that sort of journey feels like in proportion to my sort of like space ambitions. A, a nice short and sweet <laughs> space trip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. <laughs>